This episode is sponsored by Revitalist, yet another company that I've pursued to bring on the show as a sponsor because I know they truly have solutions to many of the problems that we face. Currently, there is a global pain and mental health pandemic that we are suffering through. For some people, traditional therapies are working, whether it's psychotherapy, whether it's even prescribed medication, but for many, many people, they are what's known as treatment resistant. The traditional roads are just not working for them, leaving them even more frustrated. You may have heard multiple times on this show the Navy SEAL community, for example, having incredible success with Ibogaine and psilocybin, and in the UK, MDMA-led therapy. The problem is none of those are legal at the moment. The good news is the anesthesiology world discovered that ketamine, a drug that they use legally every day during surgeries, actually has incredible mental health and chronic pain applications as well. Now, on episode 559, I had Catherine Walker, a certified nurse anesthetist, who decided to start Revitalist after seeing the incredible results on chronic pain and mental health challenges. This rapidly expanding company is currently in nine locations spanning Knoxville, Tennessee, Detroit, Houston, Jacksonville, Florida, and beyond. And each facility offers low-dose ketamine therapy, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, TMS, vitamin infusions, and so much more. Now, to truly hear the full story behind this, go to episode 559 and listen to Catherine Walker's episode, or go to revitalistclinic.com to learn more about the therapies they offer, their locations, and to reach out to them yourself. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the Products do what they say they're going to do on the label, and then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. 
Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 584 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show a retired police officer and host of the Chase the Vase podcast, Brock Bevel. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into policing, his own battle with addiction, the fentanyl crisis, and so much more. Before we get to this very powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them around the globe. So with that being said, I introduce to you Brock Bevel. Enjoy. Well, Brock, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Hey, it's been it's been too freaking long, man. I, I enjoyed having you on my show. I just love love talking to you, brother. Well, I've listened to several of yours. Um, I think it was Merrick Cassell. I just had BC Sanders on. I know he was on yours a few weeks ago as well. Um, so you know, I'm, I'm really excited about the perspective you're seeing with uh, some of the drug issues that we have at the moment, because that seems to be you know something very near and dear to your heart, and it certainly is for mine as well. So, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm in Mesa, Arizona. 
Brilliant. So I would love to start at the very beginning chronologically. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Right on, man. Scottsdale, Arizona. So I'm, I'm a Valley boy, man. There's not a lot of us left, if that makes sense. Most people are born in Arizona and they flee Arizona when it gets hot. But I've, I've been through it. So I was born and raised in Scottsdale, Arizona, mom and dad, two parent home. My dad was a school teacher. My mom kept it together through being a florist and doing wedding planning. And there's eight of us, man, eight brothers and sisters. Brilliant. So with your dad being a teacher, what has been his um, perspective on the way education has shifted the last few decades? And the reason I ask that, of course, there are phenomenal teachers out there. But when you look at the system that they are having to teach under the standardized testing, then when you look at our rankings compared to other countries around the world, clearly there's some work that we need to do in that kind of ecosystem. You know, I hope this doesn't sound wrong, I guess, towards my dad, but my dad was kind of a robot. He, uh, he I, and I think a lot, of, I was in education. I was an assistant principal for a few years in a, in a junior high school. And I, and I believe it starts at the top and whatever comes down, like as my dad didn't have a voice as a teacher, there's no way that he could have said, hey, we're not going to do this testing. His love, the reason he was a teacher was for his ability to coach and to impact young men. And that's why he did it. So I really don't think he got wrapped up in the political aspect of standardized testing. I think he was just kind of robotic. I can affect you guys, you men on the field, but in the classroom, it's kind of different. What did he coach? He coached football. Yeah, I mean, I mean, growing up, he coached baseball, football. Uh, basketball, but but in the end, when all of us boys got there, he was coaching football. All right. Well, I'm going to jump the timeline a little bit. So, talk to me about why you went into education, and then your perspective in that that role. Well, I went into education after my addiction, and so once I had some some, well, I'm sure we'll go back to my addiction. But I had I had 10 years in active opioid use, and I am now 12 years sober. So about half of that. I uh, even even about probably three years clean. I started in education. I went back to school at 40 years old to get my degree to prove to my kids that they needed a degree. Dumbest freaking thing ever. Dumbest, biggest waste of money. I, and in my opinion, if you're asking an educator, I think education, if you are not going to use it, is a waste of money in the States. There are so many more opportunities for entrepreneurs and and but but I mean it's now we're just now seeing this. Like when I mean I'm almost 50. And when I was growing up and being raised, it was like you're gonna go to college, you need your degree. If you're gonna, if you're gonna be on the upper echelon of money and finances, you gotta have a degree. And now that's not the truth. I mean, people with degrees, other than a few select, are making less money. Than people on YouTube and and TikTok. So, I mean, I think our culture is shifting a little bit. So, I've talked about this quite a lot. I I spent tens of thousands getting my uh, degree in the University of Florida, and it was it was such a it is such a broken system. Just to give an example, I brought a two year degree over from the University of North London with me in the same field, sports science, and then I went to exercise physiology. But prior to that, I was at paramedic school, which was a year of of uh, college credits, 
Then I had another two years to get the prereqs so I could go then and get my two-year degree, which then would get me into UF to get my four-year degree. So they wouldn't accept any of my credits as far as, well, hardly any as, as education moving forward. But at the same time, they took my credits to um, not allow me to get the financial help that I needed to go through. My, you know what I mean? So it was like, it was a double-edged sword in the wrong way, double-edged dildo. <laughs> um, but it really showed me coming from the UK, and I'm not saying that our system is great there either. I mean, you look at places like Finland, I mean, their their education system is phenomenal. But Again, as we were talking before we started recording, there are so many things that are negatively affecting the people on planet Earth that are driven by profit rather than the well-being of the population. And these prereqs that don't seem to kind of forge any path into the career you're actually trying to do are, you know, costing thousands, if not tens of thousands per class and crippling these men and women when they come out the other side. And instead of taking that same time in the classroom and actually do more job-related pertinent classes. I'm totally with you. I think Japan has a great system. Like, I, I, no, I knew growing up I couldn't do math. Sucked at math. I was dyslexic. Why, am, why is a guy like me who's never going to use math having to take these high-end math classes? Right? So it just didn't make sense. Why don't you give me education towards my field? Now, I understand my field has changed because of injuries and addiction. I mean, they've changed so many times. I've had, I've had five different careers. And so completely understand that philosophy. But man, nothing, nothing prepared me for what I'm doing today. Even, even this degree right here on my wall, it doesn't do me crap, you know? Yeah. Well, my four-year, I haven't even picked it up yet. And I think it was about two years ago I finished this. Because <laughs> there was, a, there was, and I think they, they sent it to my old address and I haven't gone back to get it yet. But it, Some dude has got it behind him on his wall yeah, with your a, name on it. In his podcast it. studio <laughs> with, it, with, it, with Sharpie running it out. <laughs> oh, man. Um, all right. Well, then back to the timeline then. So yeah, that's what your parents did. When you were school age, what were you playing as far as athletics? Man, I was into everything, football, baseball, basketball. We were really, really, um, man, we were blessed. We were good athletes. So much where, I, I mean, I think three of the, there was four boys. Three of the boys got scholarships. One of the brothers was probably the best athlete, but he was blind. So my brother that's three years younger than me is actually blind, but he was a phenomenal athlete. He didn't go blind till later in life, till he was probably 20 three years old, but I'm saying he had field of vision problems. He had night vision problems as, I mean, as a youngster, my oldest brother played for the university of Wisconsin. I had a brother that played at, uh, you know, in, in uh, Chicago somewhere. And I played in Eastern Arizona. So, so we were proficient. We were really, really good. But my dad was completely driven in that light. I mean, all we did was sports. So now, did you play multiple sports or just focus on football? I actually, in high school, I wrestled, played baseball, and played football. Okay, because that's a common theme is the multi-sport athletes seem to do a lot better overall, contrary to popular belief where, you know, you see all these camps driving these children through one sport over and over and over again. Yeah, I wasn't a wrestler. I, I, I had a coach that came up to me my junior year and said, hey, if you want to be better in football, come wrestle. And I'm like, oh, that sounds like a, that sounds viable. That sounds like legit information. So I went and wrestled. 
I mean, I, I mean, I went to state, but I really, with only two years under my belt, I wasn't very good. I was just strong and athletic. That was all. I didn't know the moves, but it, it was a blast. I loved it. It was actually probably one of my favorite sports that I did. But so I agree with you. Being a, a multi-sport a sport athlete was was far better than than being a single. Plus, it kept me out of trouble. So with your brother losing his vision, just to go back to him for a second, um, to to be born without vision is one thing because there's an element of that's all you've ever known. But to get through up to the adult years and then start losing it um, and having, you know, competed at a high level despite some of the, the deficiencies you had, I can imagine obviously physically there was a, an adaptation, but also mentally that must have been challenging for him. So how was he able to overcome that? I mean, honestly, this kid is, I hope he's listening because he, he has been listening to some of these podcasts and I really don't get a chance to talk to him about it much. This kid is an absolute stud. You know, I mean, just think about it going from being able to see to having limited vision. So he has a disease called RP, which is retinitis pigmentosa. And it's where the, the retina just starts deteriorating until the whole vision's gone. And so if he would, he could look at like certain spots and, and get a clear vision, then he could see through that spot. Do you know who Charles Barkley is? The basketball player. Basketball player. So we're, we went from, we went into a movie theater from the, from daytime to light into the theater. We were running late. So we had to cruise down in. I got his shirt. I'm kind of guiding him. He's so good at just hanging on it and moving with me. And we were running into the theater and Adam has, I think, some popcorn and a, and a soda. And he I'm like, OK, we're stopping here. And he kept walking and ran right into the back of Charles Barkley. Charles Barkley, like, spills his, his, his popcorn and stuff. And, and Adam just takes a seat right there in the, in the movie theater, you know. But like that was kind of his issue was going from that light to dark, being able to see in the field of view. But this kid, the way he did it, he was he. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. He went through it. He had a lot of struggles growing up, man. Like he, he, I think he took all of the ailments that all of our family was supposed to be given and he took them all himself. He had a really bad asthma. He wasn't healthy. And then he became blind. And so all of these things, but he knew how to work through it. He was resilient. And you want to talk about gritty. This kid is now, he is a proficient guitar player. He owns two businesses. I mean, the guy is, he has uh, four children, just he's doing life like you're supposed to do. And he's got a wonderful family supports him. And he's an example to so many people, you know, it, it's kind of cool to watch him perform. Oh, it sounds amazing. It reminds me of um, another guy. I think he was born blind though, this gentleman, but I, I wish I could forget his name now or his handle on social media, but my son actually showed him to me on TikTok. I have to be... I kind of finally let my my little boy get on social media. There were stipulations, but he constantly is looking at you know either high level athletes or inspiring stories. So he's using it the way it should be used. But this one guy, so outgoing, so optimistic the whole time. At least in you know in the glimpses that we get. But he skateboards, he snowboards. I mean, he does everything, and he, he's you know completely blind. But again, his his attitude is you know this is what I was given, and so this is what I'm going to do with it. And then when you kind of contrast that to a lot of the environment that we're seeing at the moment, I think one of the biggest issues that right now is just a lack of gratitude. Like you woke up and you opened your eyes and you saw you're doing 
better than you know so many people that are out there you 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 hear music you're still smashing it compared to so many people you can stand up again you leveled up you know and yet there's this whining about all the minutiae at the moment instead of just realizing like you didn't wake up in the ukraine today or syria you know or afghanistan so i think it's people like your brother that remind us just to to take a step back and realize how fortunate you are and use that gift of your human body to do good in the world rather than just bitch and complain. Man, let's, can you, can you scream that a little louder? Cause I'm seriously thinking that's what <laughs> it's just so hard. Even get on social media. Now everybody just wants to fight with you back in the day. I remember James, when we were growing up, man, you could have a dispute. You could disagree with somebody. You could agree to disagree. Hey, you don't like that. I'm, I'm, we can still be we can still be best friends. I, it's OK. You don't have to like or you don't like him. It's OK. I, I like him and we can still be friends. But today we are creating a society where we have such division. It's black or white. You have to support this. You have to like this. And if you don't and if you support the other side, well, I can't be your friend. And so I, I don't know where we've gone and how this happened so fast. I don't know if it was if it was COVID, the president, what happened. But, man, it's 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 declining fast. Yeah, I, I squarely blame the last two presidents. And it's funny because when I like two years ago, I got people bitching. Oh, you're so disrespectful to President Trump. Now I don't hear anyone complaining when I'm bitching about <laughs> about Biden because it's the same thing. And we started talking before we started recording. When you have a system that doesn't allow true leaders that have ethics that won't be bought by lobbyists and they can never get to the top, you're going to end up with the same thing. One will have a red tie, one will have a blue tie, but neither of them will have the good intentions of the country at you know the, the core of their belief. They'll be lining their pockets, they'll be lining their friends' pockets, and after four or eight years, they'll piss off and then go work for the companies that were lining their pockets. We see that every day. I mean, that's that's it. But how, how cool would it be to have a, a, a different modality of, of, of finding leaders? There's some good. But here's the problem. We have good leaders now and they're the ones that are being just demolished by stepping up and saying things. It's, you know, I, I follow a guy. I don't know if you know Jocko Willink. Never heard of him. He, he's just a, he's <laughs> just a, Yeah. <laughs> He's just a good dude, right? A good leader. He 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 has good product, and and it would be the same thing. We put him in a, in a position of power, and then all of a sudden, people hate him. Well, yesterday you loved the guy, and now you hate him because now he has power. I, I just don't get this country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there are so many. You know, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of talk about Joe Rogan, who absolutely was one of the reasons why I started podcasting. You know, as I've said, I think an interview the other day. I don't agree with everything. He says or thinks, I don't agree with everything all his guests say, or my guests say, all my guests don't agree with everything I say, and vice versa. That's, as you said a minute ago, is what's called being a grown up. You know, if Joe has an iPhone and James has a Samsung, we can still be friends. Mindfuck. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but, but Joe, remember, Joe Rogan was a comic. That's how he started. He's not super delicate, you know, and, and we just got to be really careful what we say to now. Because people just, I mean, how many people have you, you had on your show where they said something you're like, well, I don't, I don't totally agree with that. <laughs> and that's, that's okay. Yeah. Well, let me tell you this. And I've been asked to remove comments that some of my guests have made. And I say no, because again, that's, you know, what we say is what we say and it's out there. And 
it's not going to sit right with everyone. As we're going to talk about addiction, that's one of the things I know that, you know, irks some people in law enforcement. It's an uncomfortable conversation, and that's the whole point. I want you to be uncomfortable. I want you to question everything that you were taught. And so, you know, with Joe, you know, I mean, I'm sick of hearing him talk about ivermectin. I hated it when he had... um Oh, I forget the dude's name, you know, the kind of vegan, anti-vegan debates and that. I mean, I couldn't stand it. What a waste of three hours. But, I, you know, so many people he's brought on make me question things. So many great guests of all colors and creeds, backgrounds and, you know, sexual orientations. Um, and so that's just it. If you've got almost 2,000 episodes, you're going to be pissing some people off. You're going to say some things that trigger people. But you've got to ask yourself, why am I triggered? Why am I offended by this? Is this coming from a place of hatred? Or are you literally holding a mirror to my face? And, you know, some of the ridiculousness that we have amongst our society, are you, you know, are you making us look? And I think that's it. Same with, with the South Park mentality. You know, how many people did they piss off? But they made fun of all of us, all of us, and sh- and showed us our, our prejudices and our ridiculousness. And that's why people find it uncomfortable. Yes, it's very crass and crude and, you know, firehouse humor. I actually find it quite funny, but, you know, it's uncomfortable because it's so close to the truth. And like you said, these are conversations we were having in briefings in the patrol car, in the back of the ambulances. Do you know what I mean? These were conversations we were having. And what was interesting is when when I was working, there wasn't, I had partners who were African-American, right? We never, ever questioned a comment that we we said to each other. And we weren't always PC. You know, we had Asians and we had females and we, we just I mean, if, if you say that now, you're going your your head's on a chopping block. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. I mean, you know, yeah. When you when you listen to a fire station conversation amongst a crew who are all friends that are all, you know, have the kind of the, the, the green light to to make fun of each other. Yeah, it's absolutely brutal. And that's because we love each other and we would die for each other. And that's Amen. what people don't understand. That's the difference. Absolutely. Well, even, you know, with, with this whole cancel thing, I mean, we kind of found ourselves talking about what we were talking about before. But what is also terrifying is, you know, people try to cancel Martin Luther King. They try to stop that movement. People try to cancel the Jews. And look what that brought. You know what I mean? So when you... say to the the society, hey, this group of people don't get to have an opinion anymore. And I'm not talking again about, you know, of course you want to cancel, you know, fascists and members of the Klan. And, (laughs) you know, there's a point where, where again, it comes from hate. But when it's a group of of people that are doing nothing wrong and you'll suddenly start to, you know, you're canceling them, that to me mirrors so many of the atrocities that we've seen in our history. What happened to the freedom freedom of speech. I mean, we're, we're, we're covered under the constitution on those things, but now today it's like hanging by a thread. It's like, what's really happening and who's making the decisions. That's what I always ask. Like who's canceling, canceling these cultures. Is it us? Is it, are we just going with it? You know, I remember when all this COVID stuff happened, I, I went to Costco with my wife and they had us like walking through these barriers Right. And it was it was almost like probably half mile long. And I'm walking through this. I'm like, babe, I got to get out of this. Like, I feel like I'm in a rat trap just following everybody else through this maze just to put a mask on, to wash my hands, to get into Costco. And and it wasn't so much about the mask. 
but it was how everybody was get, being conditioned by it. Yeah, no, it's it's been, uh, I don't know, it's been so strange to watch. And I think, again, what how I find the middle road in some, so many of these conversations is asking yourself, is it coming from a good place? So, you know, for example, someone makes a, a comment that someone is offended by, well, that person's work. Is it doing good in the world? I would say Joe's is definitely doing good in the world. You know, the the COVID element, are the doctors and nurses in the hospitals coming, you know, doing what they can to save lives? Absolutely. Are the people that create in these vaccines, maybe not the ones counting the money at the top, but the ones actually putting the hard work in, is that coming from a good place? Yes. But then when you're given all this fear mongering and you're told it's about the health and you're not seeing anything change in the food in our schools, in PE programs, in parks and beaches being open, you know, then you say, well, is that health? And you say, no, that's not coming from a good place because you've done nothing to actually affect the obesity epidemic, the opioid crisis, all these things that are murdering our people by the millions. So that is when, if you want to find center again, I find, is it coming from a good place? Is this person being, being hateful or are you just offended by their rhetoric versus are they standing saying, we're doing this for one thing? And then you realize, well, if you were doing for that one thing, the last two years, you would have changed all these things and you haven't. That to me is where, where the common sense middle ground to question, you know, what we're being told. I'm vaccinated. I believed, you know, it would be part of the solution back in the day, but I've also worked out and eaten well this last two years. You know what I mean? So both sides of the coin. Yeah. No, you're you're right. And you get me fired up when you start talking like that. Like, wh why haven't we talked about physical fitness? Why are we not even having we're paying people to stay home from work? Why don't we pay them to stay home from work and work out like let, let's give let's give them something. Our kids can't leave the house. They're not working out. They're not being physically active. They're getting sick. And it's just we're just perpetuating this. And then we talk about the opiate epidemic, man, that that right there is firing me up more than anything. Last year alone, more people died from from overdose than COVID car crashes and heart attacks combined. Okay. So here's the deal. Where's the real epidemic? So if we're just looking at numbers, okay, we're not talking about anything else, but we're just looking at straight facts. What's filling our hospitals? Okay, yeah, we have COVID patients, but they're not even talking about the overdose patients that are coming. I mean, doctors are like, dude, I, we can't, we can't even, we can't even save these guys. Back in the day when I was working on the streets, a heroin addict would overdose one shot of Narcan. Well, you know, you hit them with the Narcan. And they come alive, man, right? They're standing up wanting to fight you. You took me out of my eye. They're pissed off. Well, now, today, they're being shot. They're being nasaled or, or they're being hit with a shot eight, nine, ten times. And, I mean, we're, 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 we're running out. We're running out of Narcan. In Arizona, we have a shortage. Our, our departments can't even get it. And so when, when we start talking about the epidemic, it's just like, why are we not? Put, I mean, it's not, it doesn't fit their narrative. It doesn't make them money. But our borders wide open. Our mail system is allowing fentanyl to come over from China, from Mexico in the mail. 
not being searched, not being checked. And I understand that, man, to, to do all of that, to, to infiltrate that, man, we, we just got to do better and we're not, we're not doing it. If you just pull Arizona up in the last month, dude, there has been people found coming over the border with, with fentanyl in food. We found it on their bodies in their, in their bodies. I mean, it's just like, what the hell's going on? Like, this is an epidemic. So th- that's where I get fired up, James. It like, makes me so mad, dude. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you see it and I see it. And I think that's the thing. A lot of people listening, whether they're first responders, whether they're in the military, whether they're in the medical professions or outside of that, probably within themselves or within their, their relatives, we see people having to take chronic meds because they're obese or you know copd because they've smoked or you know as as you get the antidepressants and the painkillers and you know it is it's a crisis and i think anyone that kind of gets to see behind the curtain that works for one of our associate professions it's up to us to really question it and to become one of the voices i, I kind of realize like, i can't think of a famous police officer i can't think mm. of a famous firefighter that people listen to a lot like joe rogan or you know someone from the television and yet our voices, you know, are so important because we get to see behind the facade. You know, we get to see the, the the Wizard of Oz, if you like, you know, what he really looks like. And so these poor men and women are are trusting you know, the food that's in their high street. They're trusting what their doctor says. And I don't think doctors come from a bad place, but the doctors that come on here, they get like a week of nutrition, sleep, and exercise training in a six-year med school program. You know what I mean? So the rest is kind of, you know, pharmacology and chronic disease management. And so I wish that we could show, you know, what was that one film where they put their hands on their head and they kind of got to see everything that person has seen? Um, yeah. You know, it's just, it's that. This is what we see. Those drugs don't save you. That food is killing you. These, these, these antidepressants and opiates are hooking you. And if we can get people to see the the proactive lens, you would change the world. But right now, there's this kind of, I hate using the word sheep because it's so derogatory. But, you know, there's this kind of, like you said, your dad, the, the robot mentality where people just trust too much what the government says, what some of their medical professionals say, instead of questioning, you know, is it working? And if you look around and see the obesity epidemic in this country, you you hear about all the overdoses and question them, but maybe it's not. Maybe there's another way we should be doing it. Well, I agree. I had a, I had a guy, I, I posted some information this week about fentanyl and the dude piped up and I, and I love it. I love a good dialogue. And he's like, well, you know, the, the, you know, these drug addicts, they're taking it on their own. It's voluntary. So if they die, it's voluntary. I'm like, Absolutely, totally agree with that. Okay. I have no problem with that. I understand that people can get addicted. I got addicted. I understood it. I understood that I was the only guy coming to save me as well. Like nobody else was coming to help me. But the problem was, why did it take me 10 years to figure it out? Because it was, I was so chemically dependent on it. I didn't have therapy. I wasn't going to AA. I didn't have a doctor saying, hey, Dude, you need to slow down on these things. You're eating through these pills. He just told me, hey, you're a cop. You'll never get hooked on these things. So there's that dichotomy. You're a cop. You won't get hooked, but I'm hooked and I'm a cop. So so now what? Right. And so with that, people don't understand. Listen, it takes one time. I 
you may not be predisposed to becoming addicted to an opioid. But I remember the first time I took an opioid, I was hooked. I, I felt it like whoop, hooked me up. And so now what? Okay, I'm hooked on it. I took it. I took it because I had an injury or even a, a friend gave me a pill because I broke my back and I, and I couldn't get to the doctor. I'm hooked. So help me. How do I get off it? Right. And there's got to be, there's got to be, and I know there's money's going to this, but like you said, we're having so many people lying in their pockets. It's not going to the streets. It's not helping the people that need to be helped. And so that's my frustration with it. Why? Listen, we have, we have the ability in America to shut the freaking country down. We shut down America, right? Where we had curfews and masks. You couldn't go attend church. Like we shut this freaking place down. And, our, and because of COVID, but we have something more deadly than that. And we're not even taking steps. We're not even educating the people. We're, listen, here's what frustrates me, James. I get four emails a day from my high school here telling me how many teachers, how many parents have COVID, not parents, how many students and teachers have COVID. Every day there's an email. Why are we not educating these people? Why are we not educating our families about the, the concerns of fentanyl? It's attacking the youth. Our kids in Arizona are dying left and right. Yet we're not telling parents about it. How does that even work? Yeah, no, and it's there's so much hypocrisy as well because, you know, when they're sending that, I mean, my thing is we're two years in now, you know, people having it versus people being really ill from it are two different things. You know, you're back to, well, just don't go to school if you've got a stinking cold or the flu. That's just common sense and decency. But aside from that, you know, we've got to move on. But they're just perpetuating that fear. But I, I want to get deeper into the, the, um, addiction conversation but before we do because i jumped all over the place and got my soapbox a little bit and i don't like to be the one that's talking more than the guests so when you were in high school let's kind of do your career path now what were you dreaming of becoming a police officer always when i was a little kid my dad i didn't know but i was probably five years old i was thumbing through my dad's closet and i found a bag and when i opened the bag there was a police uniform my dad was a police officer prior to being an educator. So, of course, I put that thing on. I just like it was this empowerment. I mean, you probably felt the same way when you're like donned in your firefighter outfit and you're like, man, this just feels something different. And that's and that's what I wanted to be. I wanted I wanted to feel different. I wanted to have that uniform on. I want to have that level of protection. And the funny part is once I got on and got the uniform, I wanted to take it off and work undercover. So that, that's kind of a, yeah. So in high school, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a cop. Now, before we move into you know your journey into it, um, a common theme, not, not every time, but a very, very common theme with people that have struggled with some sort of mental health element in our professions is an element of childhood trauma. This incredible journey you've been through, when you look back now, are there any elements of your upbringing that you contribute to the struggles that you had later in life? 
Tons, brother. Tons. And, and I'm with you. I believe that most of our acting out as adults is related to childhood trauma. We don't know how to handle it, man. So we just cope. We self-medicate. And there was a couple incidents in my life. I mean, my, uh, my oldest sister experienced some major depression up and down. It was always, it was chaos. There was always fights. Uh, there was, I would, I wouldn't say physical abuse, but my dad and mom, they were, they're from the South, man. They were, they were very heavy handed. They were very structured on how we lived our lives. And uh, there was some, there was some drug use early on in my life. There was some sexual abuse early on in my life. So all, I think all of these things played a role in it. And so, yeah, to answer your question, absolutely major trauma. And I think the biggest thing for me, James, is when I was eight years old, I had my first experience with pornography. And I remember looking at it. I remember what it made me feel. I remember I couldn't get it out of my brain. When I talked about that chemical hook that I felt when I first took opioids, that was the same hook. Like I could taste it. I could taste it in my mouth. If you talk to heroin addicts, they can say, yeah, man, I can taste it in my, in my throat. And it's the same thing, man. Like I could taste what like that need for pornography was. And so from eight to 40, brother, I was 100% addicted to my addiction cycle in pornography use. Now, did you say there was sexual abuse in your childhood? There was. Was that prior to the discovering pornography? Uh, you know what? I, I don't remember if it was right. It was the same age. I was eight. And I don't remember if it was before or after. So I just, I don't remember the timeline. I know it was before I got, I got baptized in my church because I got baptized in March as an eight-year-old. And so I remember in my mind being, man, I'm not worthy to be baptized because of this. So I'd already experienced pornography and some sexual abuse. See, what's interesting, I mean, firstly, it's, it's heartbreaking. And this is what's, you know, the common denominator over and over again. It's not always sexual abuse. It's, it's you know, as you know, the trauma spectrum is, is vast. But I had a guest on who I discovered as a young young man, like a late teens. Um, and he was a bouncer, Jeff Thompson, written a bunch of books. And, you know, they were about how to fight and, you know, the kind of psychology and asked a dude a question before you punch him in the face and all these kind of like tactical how not to die when you're a teenager books. And so someone mentioned his name about two years ago in an interview. And I was like, shit, I forgot about that guy. I need to, to reach out to him and get him on the interview. Cause I mean, I really liked his stuff. I had no idea that he had been through such a genesis himself. He was sexually abused by his martial arts instructor when he was a young man. And Jeff was so, so brutally honest about what that did to his sexuality. And, you know, would, would kind of like be, be abuse, self-abusive through masturbation and all this stuff. But it, it what you would normally perceive as a healthy sexual journey was completely destroyed because of this abuse from this man. And so violence was his outlet and sex was his outlet, but this kind of distorted, strange, kind of parallel um, sexual journey that he was on. Um, and again, that all stemmed from the abuse. So when you talked about the pornography and the abuse happening around the same time, you know, it, it seems to me that maybe there's an element of that in your journey as well. Absolutely. And the problem was, you know, as well as I do, the pornography is just an outlet. 
the the masturbation is your release from all of that pain, all that that frustration. And you just get you just I mean, that was like I would I would purposely get in fights with my wife and my, you know, not my kids, but my wife. And I would have trauma so I could go use. So, I mean, that tells you kind of how I mean, sick I was. I was I was not healthy, man. Yeah. Well, then how and that's the thing, like, how can you be abused as a completely vulnerable, innocent child when your only kind of existence at that point is trusting these adults in your life? And that one trust is abused and that feeling of vulnerability then is, you know, is magnified. Um, And if that's not dealt with and then you enter, for example, law enforcement, fire, military, you know, you've just got this kind of crockpot that's about to you know, explode. And then you add all the shit that we see and do in our profession as well. Well, the, the, the interesting part was I masked and hid that and buried that so deep in my life that I actually forgot about it. That uh, it was such a traumatic event that I just, I I don't want to say I hid it, but I, but I, I subconsciously let it go. And it wasn't till I'm walking in Walmart and I'm walking past this lady that had the same lotion that this individual had on. And I remember the wave when it hit me, it was like, it just flood of emotions came back. Crazy, right? You you talk about triggers or external, internal triggers. That was my trigger was the smell of the lotion that opened everything up. And I'm like, holy crap, dude. And I remembered it just like, it was yesterday and it was hard, man. And, and I, and then I'm like, okay, I understand the timing. I understand what's going on in my life. Okay. And now I can like understand where I was at. And I actually talked to the individual and we, and you know, it's today it's, there's some healing in it. Well, it's such a, you know, important testimony. So thank you because these are very uncomfortable conversations. Like we're talking about the censorship. Imagine if you censored any mental health discussions. Everyone would stay in the shadows and they keep sticking ropes around their necks and guns in their mouths. You know what I mean? The word masturbation is like, oh, you can't talk about that. We need to talk about all these things. This is the human experience. We have to. So Our secrets keep us sick, brother. Oh, absolutely. And it's funny you said about burying it. I was in a house fire when I was four and it wasn't even a trauma that has ever really bothered me because I became a fucking firefighter for Christ's sake. So clearly, you know, there wasn't that that big of a deal for, for whatever reason, but that memory had been suppressed. And it was only when I started writing my book that it all came out. And I was like, oh shit, I forgot about that. That's probably why I became a firefighter. And that was a positive turn, obviously, but I totally understand the the burying element because it literally was not in my consciousness for you know, a solid decade either side of when I started the fire service. It was crazy. So walk me through then, you know, you, you, you've been inspired to be a police officer. You graduate high school. What was your journey in? You know, how how did you find, you know, the first few years? Um, and then kind of, I know there was an interesting transition out as well. Yeah, there was, I remember when I tested, there was 550 guys that were testing for seven or eight spots. It was in, in downtown Mesa. I was working as a plumber. I'm like, man, I got to get on because I do not want to plumb the rest of my life. And I, I remember psychologically when I got there, I'm looking around and I'm already saying, there's no way I'm getting this job. 
because just the magnitude of these guys, I don't know if you remember that you're testing, but the guys were dressed there. They were, their uniforms were pressed, their shirts, their, their pants were bloused. They have on the polished shoes. They were fit. And I'm like, dude, I'm 21 year old return missionary from my church. And I'm trying to become a cop, you know, but I went in and, and I took the test. So here's the funny part. When we took the test back then, they would bring you all out and they, you would give it to them and they'd run it through a scanner and they, they would say pass, fail. If you passed, you stayed there. If you failed, you had to do the walk of shame through all the people and leave to the parking lot. And I remember thinking, okay, Jesus, listen here, let me make a deal with you. Just let me pass. <laughs> I don't care if I get on, but just let me pass this test because I don't want to do the walk of shame. I don't want to be, and I didn't know anybody, but I'm like, come on, man. I just don't want to fail this test that, you know, and do it. I, I passed the test and then did the physical and, and went through it and first shot got on. But I was pretty lucky because I did speak fluent Spanish. And I think in at the time, speaking uh, fluent Spanish from my mission to Paraguay helped me get on to uh, the department because there wasn't a lot of Spanish speakers. We were having an influx of of uh, Hispanic nationals coming across, living in, in Arizona, and we need a translator. So that, in my mind, that's probably why I got on. There was probably a thousand other guys qualified, but I was the one white guy that spoke Spanish. So, yeah. And then, you know, you get on and go through four, four months of FTO. And then my goal, once I got on a patrol, was first way out. I hated patrol. I got so tired of the domestic violence. I got tired of the neighbor disputes. Your dog's pooping in my lawn. I need the police to go talk to my neighbor. Just stupid calls like that. Now I love the excitement and, and, I, and I love that. But just the mundane of the silly freaking calls that police officers go on and firefighters. You know exactly what I'm saying. It's like, come on, man. You really can't handle that situation. But that's why we're there. So what what was the journey into undercover then? Obviously, you didn't want to be in patrol anymore. I just was really good at arresting dopers, you know, and I and I it was my thing. I would look for it. I would look for any probable cause that I could pull you over for. And I was really good at interview and interrogation. I could see signs right away. I just was that was my niche. Some guys were really good at DUIs. Some guys were traffic guys. I just loved and I felt like I was doing a big deed by pulling these guys off the streets, right? The more dope I got off the street or more dopers I seized and arrested, I was like, man, I've, I felt like I was empowering, like I was doing big things. And so as these cases that I would get into grew, I aligned myself with our narcotics team, our SCAT team, and I was just sending them and feeding them arrest after arrest, confidential informants and things that they could like work that that would come and that would come through and work through them. And so we were we were facilitating, you know, from a patrol standpoint, a lot of big arrests. And so that so when I went to test for that division, that unit, they already knew me. They knew my name. They knew who I was. I'd already done a ride along with them. So and I had to test well, the test went well. And then I went through the interview and, and, and made it. So that was like, that was my dream. 
Now, a few people have been on here that have worked in that division. There seemed to be a common thread. I don't want to load the question, so I'm not saying this is going to be your perspective, but there seemed to be a common thread where even though, you know, we're kind of groomed to believe in the war on drugs and, you know, this, we're going to, we're going to snuff out this, this epidemic. As soon as they arrested someone, there was a void and someone else just popped up or there was a void and there was a turf war and there was even more violence because of that. Over the course of your time in there, did you see an impact globally, you know, as far as, as the whole movement or was there a frustration because it was spinning the wheels? You know, both. What I, what I did notice, we were making an impact in neighborhoods and that was kind of our goal. We would, we would target certain areas or neighborhoods. We would do the investigation. We'd do the covert buys. We'd do the undercover stings. And then we were able to rid the neighborhood of these individuals. Now, they would be released the next day. They would go take another spot in another city, but they wouldn't come back to that spot. And so for us, we felt like at least we were cleaning that side of the street up. Now, were we making big? I mean, we were dealing we were doing big, big deals, big buys, big undercover buys with other agencies. And, and we were never, we, we understood if we could just get it out of Mesa, we were doing a good job because you're not, you're not putting an end on the war on drugs because you have no help. First of all, agencies didn't even talk. You know, if, if you're going to, if you're going to make a, a real impact on, in, in the war on drugs, Every agency that you work that works around you, and I'm talking federal, state, local, all agencies have to communicate. We actually did a buy bust on the DEA, which means <laughs> we were dealing drugs to the DEA. They were, or actually, we were paying for it. They were dealing to us, and of course, you have to do two buys. This the second time, dude, we're like busting out of our vans. We're all pulling guns on each other. Like, how does that happen? So when you start thinking about it, if 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 Phoenix and Mason, Gilbert, all these little towns don't even know what's going on with each other, they don't know the suspects, they don't know the drug, you're never making an impact. So until that opens up and we have some type of ability to communicate within agencies, within state, with the with the federal feds, the feds don't want to talk to anybody. They're so they're so private, they think someone's gonna blow their case or whatever, but how how are you going to make a change? And and that's I think my frustration is there's so much freaking money out there that is being thrown around. Why can't we focus it on interdiction? That's it. Absolutely. Well, BC Saunders was on, who I know has been on on your show as well, um, and it had an amazing discussion with him. And what the interesting thing that he was talking about was focusing on the violence so rather than the actual product and, and i think i forget what he uh what did he say like kilo kilo fairies i think he called it um you know so you're chasing the the the, the newspaper clipping of you with a bunch of uh you know coke or whatever it was he was talking about focusing on on the violent criminals themselves now i when i first moved to the states i ended up in broward county for a little bit right when all the pill mills were going um you know i've had uh, Sam Quinones, who talked to, uh, wrote the book Dreamland, talks about the opiate crisis in, you know, Ohio. We've had people from West Virginia. This opiate in general, whether it was initially, you know, OxyContin, whether it was, you know, black tar heroin, whether it's fentanyl, 
is absolutely destroying this country as we've seen. So you've got the trying to catch bad guys element. What are you seeing in your community in Mesa with this opiate crisis itself? Dude, it's still, I, I, I can't tell you a, a, bit, a community that's being affected more. And, and I, granted, I think it's probably because we're right by the border. It's coming here first. If you look at the arrest now, we're seeing kids die. We're seeing free, these guys turn into zombies. I mean, it's chasing these blues. It's it's an epidemic. When I tell you it's an epidemic, drive to any local park in Arizona. You'll see guys just hanging around. They It's just they can't work, man. All they, they're so hooked on drugs and the resources are overloaded. God bless the people that are in this realm in Arizona. They just don't have any more time. They don't have any more resources. They have no more rooms. They have more, no more beds. It is just now guys are living by the state capitol, laying on the floor, defecating all over the streets. We can't, I mean, it's do when I talk about it, it's an epidemic. When we hang up here, I'm going to send you some pictures. And if you want to show your listeners what we're going through, it's a real deal, man. It's a lot like what you're seeing in Los Angeles. And so BC is my guy. So I'm going to throw BC a love out there to him. But, but I understand that. But if we want to really change it, it is all fueled through money. These dopers, these, these, these dealers, these smugglers are all motivated by money. And so we, we got to get to a fact. We got to get to an opportunity where we start chasing the money and not the drugs. The drugs are following the money and not vice versa. So we got to be a better job shutting that down. And we're seizing, Arizona seizing millions of dollars. Listen, every single arrest made, there are three things present. You ready? Guns, drugs, money. Every traffic stop. And those, why do those three go, go hand in hand? Like you said, it's the violence, man. It's the movement of money and trying to get people hooked. Now, I want to get into the proactive element that I, you know, my, my dead horse that I flog many, many times on this episode. Um, but before I do, when you talk to some of the old timers, what did the border look like, let's say 30, 40 years ago? Because I, you know, I'll get into why I think, you know, we've, we've created such an absolute, you know, maelstrom, um, of violence, especially for the poor people either size of the border. But, you know, this seems to have escalated the last 10 plus years or so. So, you know, was there a time where the border towns weren't being plagued by drugs and violence? Well, I, man. I'm, I'm not going to say yes on that. I just think we're more aware of it now because of the social media, because of the news, because of what's happening there, because of the violence. I think they're getting more attention. But but drugs have always flown through the border. It's always come into Arizona. It's simple to get into Arizona. And Arizona is the gateway to everywhere else in the U.S. We have I-40. We have We have roads that take you all the way to California, and then we're gone. And so I think a lot of it, I think it's always been there, but now I think it's, it's exasperated because it's wide open and we're understaffed. I mean, how many, how many guys can we stop a day and how much are we really missing? So that, that's, that's my take on that. Now, when you look at Portsmouth, Ohio, or some areas in West Virginia, you know, and you start to see that there was a booming industry that then closed down, left a, you know, employment void, created poverty, and then there seems to be that kind of, you know, domino effect into addiction a lot of times. 
What about Mesa? Was there an element of that there? Or is it more that they are literally at the beginning of the fire hose of all this, um, you know, smuggling? And so they're the first consumers that the, the people on the other side find. Yeah, man, that's a really good question. I believe it's coming here first and it's just being dropped because we're getting a lot of the rest here with big quantities. If you look back east, they're not getting as many, at least what I'm seeing in the news, not such a big quantity. I mean, Phoenix just had um, a 300,000 pill traffic stop. It's a lot of dope. That's killing communities. That's killing states. You know what I mean? With the amount of fentanyl that's in there. So so I just think that's what's happened is it's coming in. And then I, I believe it's education. Like our kids don't even know what they're taking anymore. Back in the day when we were smoking weed, it wasn't, it wasn't put, it, fentanyl wasn't on it. And now we're, we're finding fentanyl being field tested by the police or marijuana being fentanyl laced. So that's a scary, that's scary, man, where cocaine's being smashed by fentanyl, uh, asses being, I mean, everything's being smashed. So those are, those are big concerns that I think we have here in Mesa. What have you seen as far as the the escalation of fentanyl itself? Because even as a firefighter, you know, I, there were definitely fentanyl overdoses towards the end of my career. Sadly, I think fentanyl claimed three of my firefighter friends because um, I know one of them, he got something from China, um, you know, and was found dead. Um, so I'm assuming that was fentanyl based on what I know now. But, um, you know, a lot of the opiate overdoses that I ran on early in my career were, ironically, prescribed meds. You know, they might have been, you know, some of the heroin that was coming in. What is, have you seen of this, of this step up of, um, uh, strength of fentanyl and, and the impact on, on some of these users that were expecting a lower dose or a completely different drug like coke or marijuana? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's where our, we're playing Russian roulette. If you're not getting it prescribed from a doctor, it has fentanyl in it. It has fentanyl in it because everything's coming in from Mexico or China. And that that's, that's the reason they're smashing in there. Number one, it's a better high. It's a longer high and it's a cheaper high. So those three variables, we talk about the supply and demand thing, right? And what's interesting is users are finding the dealers with the most powerful fentanyl, even if they're causing overdose and they're going there because they want the powerful fentanyl. So they're searching out these dealers that are killing people. It's like, that doesn't make no, that makes no sense. And so, like I said, if it's not prescribed from the doctor, if you don't open your pill cap and you have all that cotton in there, <laughs> it's prescribed from your doctor. It has fentanyl in it. And, they have the pill presses. They're making it look like a, the little blue 30s. It looks just like a Oxycontin. And they're taking it and 60% fentanyl and they're dead. Well, and you look at, again, so so when we talk about choice, and I obviously want to get into your transition out in a moment, but when people say, well, fat people just need to eat well and exercise, when they say that addicts and alcoholics just need to stop, yes, there's an element of truth in that. But the way that you create ownership is you create an environment for people to thrive, to people to succeed. And, you know, what I see, I just watched Dope Sick, and I'm trying to get the author of that on the show. Um, when you see the, 
devious nature that was behind the marketing of Oxycontin in, you know, in the pill mill days when I was here in Broward County and the way they had the FDA basically lie on the label through again being duped and they had graphs that were telling completely the wrong story. I mean, it was just, it was disgusting. So now you have, you know, not only patients getting addicted and dying, you have doctors getting addicted and dying. And so, you know, we create an environment that makes addicts. Then after the pill mills closed down, as Sam wrote in, in Dreamland, now you have this void. So now people are starting seeking, you know, heroin because that's the only way they can get it. Now, again, there's another move where fentanyl is the next step, but because of the, the, um, the, the strength of that versus a, a lower opiate, you know, we're, we're just seeing people drop. And as you mentioned, what would have, turned around if I'd given Narcan, which I did so much in my career. I mean, nasally, EJs, you name it. Um, that saved people. I watched it save people. But the thought that it would take nine Narcans to reverse a fentanyl overdose is absolutely terrifying. Well, you asked why you, I think before you asked about like how the police are handling this. Police are pissed off. Let's be honest. So here in Arizona, it's taken eight, nine times to bring someone back to life. Okay. Reverse the overdose. And the police officers are going to the same scenes, the same homes, reviving the same people. And they're like, dude, this is just craziness. This is crazy. I've gone, on, I've been on the same run three times this week on the same guy. And we've used 18 things of Narcan. And in my mind, it's like, dude, I'm so glad you're doing it. But but we got to be realistic. I mean, we got to think we've been there. It's like, dude, does this guy really want to live? And then you look at his situation. You're like, he's living behind a garbage can. He's eating out of the garbage can. He's got no connection. He's got nobody checking on him. And yeah, all your naysayers can be like, yeah, well, he did that to himself. He alienated his family. He stole from his family. And you know what? I get it. He did. And that's that's the theme with this. But the problem is, who's reaching out now to that guy? There comes a point where that guy needs help. And that might be his rock bottom. Like, dude, I, I look at me. If people would have given up on me, if I had if I had given up on myself, dude, I'm, I'm not who I am today. And so that's where we have this super massive dichotomy in. Do we save these guys? Do they want to live? It's a choice. And it's like, we're just, we're just button heads. Narcan's saving a lot of people. Naloxone's saving a lot of people. But do they want to be saved? And if they do, what's the next step on saving them? Yeah, I had someone at uh, my gym once say, and this is a family member of hers, say, you know, I feel like we should just stop giving Narcan because they're not learning. And it's like, well, tell the alcoholic to stop drinking. You know what I mean? It's it's easy to demonize some of these Schedule A drugs or, you know, some of the, the ones that, that we put under prohibition, but your Bud Light or your whiskey, you can pound that and how dare you question my bourbon habit. You know what I mean? So it's it's such hypocrisy as well. But I really think that the way we had we've we tried this bullshit war on drugs for almost a hundred years. And when I've talked about this over and over again, when you look at the root of it, it comes from racism and you know, job justification, all the fucking wrong things, as we talked about earlier. Is it coming from a good place? Absolutely not. It never was. So 
we have to not say, oh, how are we going to stop addicts taking drugs? But say, well, how the fuck do we have so many addicts? What are we doing? And the thing is that we've created the system where it's illegal to be an addict. So therefore, you are sending human beings that have mental health conditions to the underworld to get an unknown quantity of an unknown substance and then go back. And as they get addicted, now they start, you know, getting pulled into, you know, prostitution and gang. I mean, you name it. Everything you can do, burglary, anything to, to, to pay for your habit versus as I've talked about a lot in Portugal, decriminalization of addiction, chasing the dealers, chasing the smugglers and throwing the book at them. But the addicts funneling through mental health addiction, excuse me, mental health counseling, addiction counseling, job creation, and you cannot get all of them. But the ones you have left after you've got so many people back on the right track, you have safe injection sites. So you're, you know, Steve, the opiate addict, you go to your clinic, you have your methadone or, you know, whatever is prescribed to you, you sit there, you're observed and you go about your day. So no, you don't get fentanyl overdoses. You get, you know, the, the, the streets are safer. The, the law enforcement was able to focus on the real turds of the world. For example, the pedophile that abused you, you know, that's where the freaking resources should be going. The court system is ready and, and I'm waiting to throw the book at the people that need to. And the people that have went through mental health crisis, for example, an eight-year-old that was sexually abused, the struggle when he was older, get to actually process what they went through and join society as functioning members as they should be. I, I agree with that. The only thing I don't agree with is I don't think our system's serious about chasing the bad guys. I really don't. Because these guys who are who are transporting this fentanyl, they're knowingly killing people. Listen, if you're involved in the fentanyl game, you know you're killing people. There's so much media coverage. You know what's going on. You're taking a risk. Why are we not throwing the book at them? I mean, I understand like we're sending these guys who had a three milliliters or whatever of, of heroin in a syringe and these guys are going to jail and they're sitting in jail. There's no mental health evaluation. There's no help in jail. And they come out and they haven't changed. But yet we have these drug dealers. They get processed. The next morning they get out. They go back, change their name, a new documentation, come back and still do it again. Now, why is so, that? Because that's just what we do in the States. That's how that's how it is. It's like we... Or they 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 put a bond on them of twenty thousand dollars. Someone posts their bond because they're more valuable dealing this stuff, right? They're more valuable to them. I mean, twenty thousand dollars when you're dealing million dollar deals is not a lot of money. And so our court system's letting these guys out. Like, there's no shortage of drug dealers. And so that's what we need to do. That's where the demand needs to come in. We need to shorten that supply. By putting these dudes in, in jail. I mean, if you have over 50,000 fentanyl pills, that's not personal use. We got problems. No, absolutely. And that's, and that's where distinction is made. And it's very clear cut. Like, you can absolutely determine what would be a personal use. You yeah, know? Easy, right? Yeah. I mean, come on. We, those are already standards. We already have those standards in the law. Yeah, exactly. So we just need to take better. We just got to do a better job of keeping people in and making making them. I mean, they're always going to be somebody else coming behind them, but, but we have to do a better job. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we, we've, we've given the other, you know, uh, 
the war on drugs, the other uh, strategy, like I said, 90 plus years of our time. If you want a longitudinal study, that's one of the longest ones I know, and it's been an epic failure. And we've created more and more prisoners, more and more overdose deaths, more and more prostitutes, you know, homeless. I mean, you name it. You took a look at LA. How many of those people dreamed of being living under a bridge or in tent city when they were two, three years old? That was the Reagan. Was that Reagan administration? uh, I'm not sure. I mean, dude, you go back. I mean, you have to go back decades to find someone who actually had altruism at the heart of their leadership. You know what I mean? Decades and decades and decades. Yeah. So, you know, people go, oh, it was the left, it was the right. No, it was fucking both of them for years and years and years. That's why we're here now. And I think it started with the right foot. I mean, we were hoping that we could put a dent on it. But, dude, drugs are always, have always been here. Yeah. Well, the war on drugs was definitely, you know, the, the term was Reagan. But, I mean, it started in the 30s with Harry Anslinger, you know, and it's just – it. that's where Reefer Madness and all that stuff. I mean, it just came from – racial hatred it came from the the absolute failure of alcohol prohibition again you want another study there you go you know the only reason we know al capone is because of that so that was an epic failure as well and so what do we do we do the same thing with drugs and then we wonder why crips and bloods are murdering each other and you know i mean it's just it's insanity and the poor mexican people the poor colombians the poor you know afghani you know the opium fields out there that's actually funding terrorism like we have done nothing but destroy the planet on you know because of that one prohibition and instead we could legalize addiction like i said not smuggling not selling but just the addicts bring them back into the medical community where they should have been in the first place and we won't fix everything but we will make a huge dent in the health of this country and other countries too Oof. man that's 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 deep cuz i'm not a fan of like, I'm not a fan of, I don't want, legalizing, maybe that's just the, the word, legalizing addiction. Maybe, I, I don't, you know what I mean? Because I went through addiction. I'm, I am an addict. And that kept me safe, if that makes sense, knowing that I could I could easily go across the, the street and get more. Or it did keep me safe, but I agree. I understand what you're saying. Because we're creating a mon- we've created a monster. A monster is just out of control. We can't kill it, and so we have to find ways to slow this process down. And that's that's affecting the laws and 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 abiding by the law and and chasing the right people and getting professionals that can actually help. You know, our professionals we're so understaffed everywhere. We can't help everybody. But there's too many. There's too many of us. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, exactly. And I think what scares people when you say legalization, they envision that you can go into the 7-Eleven and buy crystal meth and PCP. That's not at all. What it is, is everything's medical now. So, you know, you're just not arrested if you're found with a personal amount. You're filtered into these things, but you can't go and buy it anywhere. But if you are an addict, then in these centers, you will be prescribed whatever it takes to to taper off your addiction as you're going through your counseling. You know what I mean? But I think totally that's, agree with that. that's where the misunderstanding, oh, we're going to have them in, yeah. in publics? No. <laughs> I mean, we're doing be that in shelf. Arizona. We're, we're totally legalized marijuana in Arizona. And so, I mean, I don't know how it's working, but we're not seeing people dying from legalized marijuana. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think there's an argument for and against because you have to ask yourself, well, why are you numbing? 
But then at the same time, there's a lot of people that are definitely getting benefits from that, you know, so why would you stop that? But I think, you know, marijuana and crystal meth are two very different conversations. And that's what you have to do as well. You can't blanket them all, you know, with the same same brush. But an addict is someone having a mental health crisis. So the moment you deviate from that and you see an addict as a criminal, you're in this perpetuating cycle that just gets worse and worse. Totally agree. Well, speaking of addiction then, you know, we we keep spitting out these tangents and I love it. So you're in undercover, you're, you know, working in narcotics. Walk me through your transition out of the, the law enforcement community. And then, you know, at what point did you start realizing that you were struggling yourself? So I had just left the undercover division. I went back to the bike patrol team. Uh, we were working an undercover sting and we got information from a, a street contact that a drug deal was being set up, that this lady was going to bring her daughter to prostitute her daughter in exchange for drugs. So, of course, we're interested and it goes down. And, and what's funny, James, is you you know how it is. There's doper standard time is it varies. It never goes down at the time it says it's going to happen. It's like hours and hours of waiting. But on this occasion, it happened. She drives up in the truck. The drug dealer pulls up next to her on his bicycle, goes to get the girl out. And we come in and and basically make a traffic stop on bicycles. And we arrest we arrest the, the drug dealer. And while we're talking to mom, the driver, she decides to run us over. So she throws her car in reverse, runs my partner over, breaks his back, runs my right foot over, tears my foot up, then blows my knee out. And we were able to arrest her. And uh I I was just reading the report today, actually, and I, I had a broken bone in my foot and then I've, I've had multiple left knee surgeries. And so, the, like I said earlier, when I went to my doctor, I had already had a knee surgery before. I was at a foot pursuit and blew my knee out. So I knew the doc and we had become pretty good friends. And when I went in there, he's like, hey, Brock, don't worry about this stuff. You're not going to get hooked on it. I'll, I'll, I'll monitor it or whatever. Um, but this, I want you to take Oxycontin and do the day I went home. I was like, I remember this feeling I'm hooked and I battled back, tried to get back to work. I had a couple surgeries, came back to work and then punched the guy in the head and blew my hand out. And really, really at that point in time, the doctor's like, dude, your knee's not getting better. You're, you're just unfit for duty. And when he said that, I was like, what are you talking about? Dude, look at me. I'm six foot one, 190 pounds. I look good. I feel good. But he goes, what happens if you get pushed down the stairs and you have to step back on your knee? You're going to blow that out and your liability. And at that point, he uh, he put the papers in. So I, I, within a year, almost under a year of my medical or my injury, they retired me. And that right there was the biggest blow to my humanity. Um, just leaving the badge behind, leaving my team behind, those, those conversations that you have at briefing in the fire trucks, all the, I mean, all those conversations I had to leave behind. I felt like I, I, was, I was cut off and I didn't have connections to those guys. So I did notice that the more opioids I took, the better those voices and those noises in the head stopped because they're always, I mean, I was like, where's my team at, dude? Why are these guys calling me? Why haven't they checked on me? I had a major injury. You know, last week I was 
running, kicking indoors with these guys and he can't pick up the damn phone. I remember I was getting really upset with it. And uh, so that was kind of where it all went. Depression, sorrow, anger turned to just frustration, which turned to more opioid use. And so, I mean, basically I blinked and it was 10 years down the road and I was a full-blown opioid addict. Now, was it a case as, as we saw in, in Dope Sick where um, the Oxycontin, I mean, first it was labeled to be non-addictive. That was the, the big, you know, lie at the beginning. But the way they portrayed a lot of the patients was it was supposed to be a 12-hour lasting effect and people were kind of realizing it only lasted like four or five and then they started taking more and then the reps were coming in advising the doctors it was safe to double a dose. And so, you know, what was... You know, a, a 10 became a 20, became a 40. Did you follow that same path yourself? I didn't. Um, but I started to the point that started playing with him. I, I was actually because I had a foot injury. My ankle was broke. My hand was tore up. I had a, a surgery on my hand and my knee. So I had three different doctors. And so I was able to say, hey, doc, this one, I need something stronger today. Or I'd go to the other doc and say, hey, can you lessen a little bit? I'm getting a little bit queasy. I had told my wife that this stuff made me sick. You know, so I was just playing the game left and right. Um, but they were sending me home with like 360 pills, those big old freaking bottles of them. You know, they weren't monitoring how many I was taking. He never said, hey, can you bring your bottle in? Can I check it? I mean, there were times I would have a two week visit. I know in my head, dude, if he checks me, I'm dead. Those pills are gone. And, you know, 360 in two weeks. Come on, man. That's like, what the hell was going on? You know, and uh he never asked. He never checked in on me. I, I was looking today. I think he he prescribed me Ativan. You know, he kept just trying to change my medication because I was like, hey, I need something stronger that works. And here I am. I'm just, just eating the damn things. And so that for me is what got me. Now, another th interesting thing, we talked about childhood trauma not being thought of a lot when we talk about you know, PTSD and mental health in our profession. It's one of the, you know, not even elephants in the room. It's just not even discussed apart from, you know, the community that's trained for that. Um, the other thing I think that I see compounding so much is organizational stress. So the feeling of betrayal, you know, whatever it is. Um, so the transition out is always tough. Even if you've done a full career, you won't, you weren't in, you know, in opiates at all. But you've lost that tribe, you've lost that community, you've lost that sense of purpose. But when you are let go by an agency, whether it's medically, you know, whatever it is, you know, there's that element too. So you have this compounding, like vicious circle now, or, or perfect storm, should I say. You've got childhood trauma, you've got the things you saw and did as a police officer, you've got kind of a you know, kick out the door and you've got the feeling of abandonment because you're at home hurt, which so many of us are so bad at, no one checked on you. So I can see, you know, the the kind of huge gaping void that it left that you started filled with opiates. So, you know, walk me down that path. Like where where was the lowest that you found yourself and, and what was that turning point for you specifically? The lowest was lost everything, man. My kids, my divorce. Be what I was trying to do, brother, is I was trying to recreate that chaos. I wanted to feel the comfort. Most people don't understand when I say this, but I loved and felt like I thrived really well when it was chaos. Big scenes, right? Shootings, uh, foot pursuits, vehicle pursuits. I, I felt like that was where I was in my Zen moment. 
I trained for it. My brain could kick in. I was really good. But when I was alone, when I was, when I was alone and I'm looking around and I'm, I'm alone, alone, that was hard, man. I lost my wife for divorce because I reached out of marriage, dude. I was, I was just mentally tapped and I had an affair. So therefore I lose my children, lose the right to have them. I'm going through, I'm just spiraling out of control, man. And there was a moment where I was driving up to visit my kids. It was a three hour drive and my, my duty weapon was in the center console. I'm retired now, but I, you know, I carry the badge. So I get out of tickets, you know, and uh, I remember just thinking, dude, my kids would be way better off. My ex-wife would be better off without me. And I reached down at the center console and put the gun up to my head and thought about, I thought about just killing myself. But, but in that moment, I'm thinking, dude, who's going to find me? What are they going to tell my kids? How am I going to like, what's it going to be like without them having a father? And right then I'm starting to pull off the road, you know, so I can park. Um, I'm up in the Salt River Canyon in Arizona and I hear my son's voice. My son was a youngster, man, but I'm thinking God sent him because he's the only one at that moment in time I would have listened to. And he says, Hey dad, you're not a chump. You're not going out like this. And I was looking around. I mean, I'm alone in this car. I've been alone for two hours. And um, at that moment, man, I'm like, okay, here we go. So I put the gun away and and cried it out a bit, you know, like, hey, dude, you just almost killed yourself. You know, you got to figure your stuff out and went and spent the weekend with them. And that was kind of my lowest. That was my lowest moment. Well, I want to get to the the upswing. But before I do, that is, again, one of the least known elements, I think, of suicide ideation. I've had people on here, so many like yourself, that were right there in a phone call or even, you know, like pulled and the firing pin didn't go off, which, you know, is, is, a, is another divine intervention, I think. But also people that did, did jump off the bridge, did pull the trigger, you know, and, and, and now in a wheelchair, for example. But every single one of them reports the same thing. Their brain was so broken through all these elements we discussed. And let's not forget sleep deprivation as well. Let's throw that one in there. That... They believed that suicide was a selfless act. And so you get these people saying, oh, it's so cowardly. Why would they do that? I mean, we just had that double suicide here in Florida, you know, a, a, a boyfriend and girlfriend that had an infant and they both took their lives without within five days. Why would they do that? So selfish. Well, because at that moment, it's so hard for us to understand with a clear mind, their brain had tricked them into thinking that they were a burden. You know, the first one was a burden to his girlfriend and, and their child. You know, the second one was so probably consumed with grief and all the other elements that were in her path that the baby doesn't deserve her as a mother. You know what I mean? And that's the thing. So when we say, oh, well, think of your family. We, you, They are. That's the point. And that's what we've got to understand. Uh, to me, that is a giant red flag. The moment that you start having those thoughts about you being a burden to people that fucking adore you, that is the real message that should be on, on all the suicide boards. Like when you start feeling like you're not worth it, that, you know, that you're a burden, you need to pick up the phone right there and then and call someone mm. that will listen. No, you're absolutely. And I'm like you, man, I, I interview a lot of people and I do see that as a pivot point. A lot of people in their lives, I, and you can't, unless you've been there, you can explain that, that deprivation, you can't explain that darkness and that, that just 
loneliness. Like I've never been, I'm not a lonely guy. You can tell I, I, I can go make friends, you know, but at that moment in time, I had shut off. It, yeah. Were the drugs a big thing? Yeah. They were keeping me down, but man, I was just like my brain. There was so much mental illness going on. There was so much frustration and sadness. I needed help. And so that, that's where it came, man. So your son comes to you in that vision. You go and spend time with him. What changed? What, what were the, the baby steps that you took to start walking yourself out of addiction and, and ultimately into education? Nothing. That's the problem, dude. Like, and I can't tell you the amount of people that I've interviewed the same. Like, I did nothing. I did nothing with it. It just saved me for a time. Right. But fast forward about, I think it was almost nine months. Um, I wake up, go in the bathroom, open my pill counter, and there's all my pills perfectly in line, written on how many I have left. And I took a pill, swallowed it down, shut the wind, shut the cabinet. And that's where everything changed. There was a mirror shining in to my room. Give me a glimpse of who I was. And all I could think about is, Brock, you live in a freaking crack house, bro. What are you doing? And at that point in time, man, I had that A-type, per- that fight came out of me, dude. And I opened that cabinet, grabbed all the pills, and I dumped them all in the toilet, flushed them. And I'm like, okay, dude, here we go. Let's go. You've talked about this for so long. Now what? Now that I don't recommend to anybody. Like I'm going to put a, a trigger warning disclaimer right here that that's not the way to handle it. You, you need, if you're, you're an opioid addict, go through it the right channels. There's medication that could help you. But in my life at that point in time, I needed that. I dumped them all. I wish I could have scuba down there and taken a couple back out, you know, just to save for safekeeping or whatever, but it was on. And so I spent seven days in my bathroom, literally detoxing, throwing up my backbone. My backbone felt like it was coming out my mouth, defecating myself, urinating myself, throwing up on myself, the just absolute most vile time of my life. And literally when I was ready to die, because I was there, I said, okay, God, I'm not making, this is not a deathbed confessional. This is, I just don't think I can go another minute. I don't think I go enough, you know, at all. So take my life or let me get up and walk out of here. And, and I'll, I'll promise and commit to you that I'll change people's lives because that's, I mean, I can't do it in the bathroom naked, laying on the floor, defecating on myself. So give me power to wake up and do, and do this. And I, I promise you after seven days, he gave me power, dude. I lifted up. I walked out of that bathroom and committed like, okay, dude, you're not going back. You're not going to the doctor. You're going to make all the right things. You're going to go to the doctor and tell him, Hey dude, I'm, a, I'm addicted to this crap and you're just going to fix your life. So, I mean, I had gotten so bad, James, that I was actually selling some of my pills to my buddy. He was going down, selling them, bringing me back money. So, so everything. So this goes full circle. When, the people that I hated the most, the people that I wanted to arrest the most and get them out of the streets because I felt, felt like they were harming everybody I had become. That was me. I was a drug addict. And so that for me was, was a highlight reel, man. I needed to wake up. So you finished your one week detox. You're still in you know, the, the crack house, as you mentioned. Um, what did that rebuilding look like? And also, 
you mentioned about being a missionary when you were younger. You know, had you lost that faith, and did that kind of uh, reaffirmation with God add to the power that you had to pull yourself out? You know, I never lost the faith, and I, I never missed church. That, that's one thing that I feel very confident with. I knew I had a relationship with God, but I was embarrassed to reach out to him. And I was unworthy in my mind to reach out to him. Like I was too vile to save him. I mean, look at me. Who's going to save this dude laying on the floor naked, crapping himself. And that's where my brain went. Who's going to, who's going to save him when I can't even take care of my kids. You can, you know, and that, that's where that self-loathing and that, that, that comes from. And so I needed, I needed to change, man. I needed to, I needed to make it right. And so that was, that was the moment that I realized that it was time to uh, do everything different. So I didn't like people are like, did you start going to AA? What was your steps? What were your tools? I was like, no, man, I changed everything about my life. All my friends, my doctor's appointments, the uh, everything. And so I started having a better relationship with Christ. I just changed who I was as an individual, not my behavior, but my nature. Now, what about the the trauma, the childhood trauma? Did you did you find a certain counselor or a certain type of psychotherapy that worked to to pull that back out and actually be able to deal with it? Not really. To be honest with you, I muscled through it for a long time. I just uh, I, I redeveloped a better relationship with Christ. But to be honest with you, over the last year and a half of podcasting. That's been my therapy session. It sounds absolutely crazy. No, it doesn't. But more has come out and I have been able to talk about it and be vocal about it and share my story in the last year and a half than I ever have in my whole life. And it pisses my family off. It's kind of funny. They're like, why are you, why are you talking? Why would you tell people? But I'm like, man, people need to hear this stuff because I'm not the only dude going through it. No, well, as you, as you and I both know, you know, I mean, I've had, 500 and almost 570 guess i think it is no more than that 572 as we speak and i mean god three quarters have significant childhood trauma some of whom are not on for you know mental health discussions at all it comes out in conversation you know but that's just it i mean we can have a loving childhood but there's always going to be these these things these negative influences whether it's you know a, a father figure leaving or I mean a mother leaving or you know you were adopted and then you finally meet your birth parents and they don't want anything to do with you or you know you were the middle child which I've had and just felt unloved because the first one and last one were the fate you know it just it doesn't matter it doesn't have to be sexual abuse or growing up around addiction but I was chatting to my siblings the other day and you know I just found out you know another element of of my you know one of my family members passed that you know, it was very, very significant. So it happens to so many people. And as circling around to the council culture, we counsel these conversations. People feel like they are alone and they are weak and they will continue to overdose and continue to take their own lives. So these conversations are so important. 100. Man, I mean, that's why, you know, my wife's like, are you ever going to start making money podcast? And I just kind of giggle. I'm like, this is, this is my therapy. Like, I love this. I, and I love the guests that we get to have on, man. Like dudes like you that, that are so willing to talk about it. That's, but that's the concerning part. There's, there's a few of us that want to talk about it, but there's so many of us that are scared 
to take that leap and to start conversing. Now, you don't have to come on a podcast and talk about it, but you got to find that person in your life, that coach, that friend, that mentor, that that pastor, whatever it is, you got to start talking about it. So you went back into education and then, you know, you started um, Chase the Vase, as we would say in England, <laughs> Chase the Vase. Um, so talk to me about, you know, because I know you had projects behind that kind of leading up to that. So when did you get into the addiction counseling side and then what made you start the podcast? Well, about seven, eight years ago, I started, I started at my own treatment center. It was an in, it was an outpatient treatment center where we had guys stay for six months and I loved it. But to be honest with you, James, I, I was missing my, my, my avatar, my people like in, in addiction, for example, I'm not an alcoholic. So for me to try to counsel and to groom and help alcoholics, I don't get it. I'm not the guy, right? But I'm really good at talking to law enforcement, first responders, guys that have struggled with post-traumatic stress, guys that are struggling in addiction. I can talk to those guys. So I realized that I was doing my men a disservice. So I left and I came down and moved about three hours away and I started Chase the vase down here in the valley, working with men and women in law enforcement, first responders, and helping them with which. So it's Chase the Voss, and uh, we do it here, man. That's what I do. And, I, and then I started podcasting a year and three months ago or something like that. And it's it's opened me up. Like I've loved it more than anything I've ever done. Yeah, it's amazing how you say about it being healing because that's one thing that I've talked about on here too. Is I don't. I don't seek counseling because I truly feel like this is counseling. I mean, these conversations, and obviously the goal is for me not to talk very much and listen, but, you know, in these interactions, you know, it, there's so much healing in that. And it's funny, I've just, speaking of uh, addiction, the one thing I've always told publicly about me struggling with is alcohol. And it was, again, it's never been binge drinking, it's never been to forget, but it's just that habitual two drinks every evening i'm gonna unwind and but it's like every evening you know and that's still a crutch so as we speak now i'm a month into abstinence of alcohol you know so we all have areas that we can tweak and improve how's it been i'm still waiting so i've done the the one month detox a few times and i think the problem is when you've drunk for 30 years you've got to wait longer than a month you know, so right now I'm still waiting for this like clear head and everything, but I know it's just going to take longer than that. And I think that was a problem subconsciously in the past is, you know, it was kind of like, well, I did it a month. Good for me, you know, sober October. And then, you know, off you go again. It's Christmas time and you've given yourself a thousand excuses to drink. This time the mindset was much more finally going, look, I've made every excuse under the sun. This is a trigger for my migraines. I mean, and I'm not, I'm not talking hangover, like literally a trigger for two-day migraines after I've had a drink or two. Um, you know, so it's like every single arrow points to you don't need this in your life. So I'm hoping that this will be the kind of missing piece for my wellness puzzle because I do a lot of things very well, not perfectly, but, you know, eat well, exercise, do all these things, meditate. But this is definitely the kind of elephant in the room um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's challenging, but that's the thing. It's hard. As they say, choose your heart. At some point you've got to realize that, you know, you've got to take out the things that are, that you know, in your heart hearts are not working in your life. And, you know, it's not as hard this time. Once I made the decision to 
quit altogether versus them having a little countdown clock for the next drink. Mm, nicely done, man. Well, I, in about about the next 90 days, I want to hear, hear how you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. No, like I said, this is an ongoing thing now. So, uh, you know, I'm, I've, I've got so many things I want to do before I start deteriorating because like you, I'm starting to approach 50 and now yeah. is a time for us to get as big and strong and mobile as possible. And, you know, I'm not going to allow drinking, therefore taking some of the motivation to stop me getting as, as fit and strong as I can to maintain for the the second half of this amazing experience that is life. It's awesome, man. Keep it up. Beautiful. All right. Well, I would love to transition to some closing questions um, so I can let you go. The first one is, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to our very diverse uh, discussion today or completely unrelated. Man, I have, I'm a book guy, but I absolutely love Extreme Ownership by Jocko. And the reason I love it is because it has everything to do with recovery, has everything to do with change. That's one thing that we lack in recovery is to own our shit. And so once we can learn to own it and to take responsibility for it, then we can change. So that's a book that I recommend to every single guy that I work with. And I'll go chapter to chapter with them and put it into their life. So that's it. Beautiful. What about a movie and or documentary? I'm, I'm going to have to pass on that one. I'm not a movie guy. I mean, I love Red Dawn. There we go. That's like that's a, movie a movie I've watched. Yeah, that's a movie I've watched for a long time. And a documentary. I don't think I've watched a documentary in a long, um, long time. So I'm out on that. Yeah, no worries at all. All right, next question. Is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? All right. So do you know Roger Rouge? Um, I don't think so. So he, him and uh, Dr. Renee Thornton, they wrote a book based on the hero project of eight pillars of wellness called Navigating Adversity. So if I'm, if I'm resp- given somebody for that, I would give Roger Rouge. It's R-U-G-E. And if you want to know about the opioids, Scott Silverman. He wrote the book, The Opioid Epidemic, and uh, he's, he's definitely an expert. Brilliant. Perfect. He, he, would be, he, would be, he would be good to have on your show as well. Absolutely. All right. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and your podcast, what do you do to decompress? I work out every morning at 4.30. Every morning. And the reason I do that, it sounds crazy. I get it. Well, actually, 4.20, my alarm goes off. I'm at the gym by 4.40, 5 o'clock it starts. But I'm already preparing to get there because if I miss, James, that's my opportunity to redirect. If, if I miss the gym, then I know something's wrong. Now, what do your workouts look like? What kind of uh, practice do you do? I do CrossFit. So like today was muscle or uh, toes to bar, a bike and rowing and um, cleans. So I love, I love muscle confusion. Now, how long have you been doing CrossFit for? Uh, I've been, I've been doing it for about three years and coaching for two years. Okay. Brilliant. Yeah. 
And have you found, because there's, there's many, many, uh, an addiction recovery story in the CrossFit community. Have you found that that community, that tribe has not replaced, but become an addition to part of the tribe that you lost in law enforcement? You know, when I, when I ran the recovery program, that was my tribe. We, we would implement CrossFit in there. We had all the gym members. It was really cool down here. Not so much, not so much. I, I find my tribe now in podcasting my guys that I could podcast with. Um, I have another podcast that I work with a, a therapist in Utah and a ex football player named Max Hall. Um, so we do that. So I have two different podcasts. So that's kind of my tribe and church. I have a bunch of guys there that check in on me. So I would say not so much CrossFit. I know it, it used to be. Brilliant. We're just circling around to the post-injury thing. What would you say if you could if you could talk to all your old, um, you know, the men and women of your old department after you got hurt? What would be your advice to support someone who, you know, had retired out, had been injured, whatever it was that was out of that tribe? Man, it's so hard because when I left, my team kept going. Like my team had to show up for work. They had to be mentally sharp. They couldn't be thinking about me. But it would be nice to have some type of transition. Like, like you don't, like, I went from being a door kicker to changing my baby's diapers. Like there was no transition for me. So that was super mental. So maybe some training that, hey, this is going to end. This is what it's going to be like. You're going to have these emotions. If you have an injury, talk to your doctors about it. Just like the educational piece would have been nice for me to have. Well, I think as well, you know, I mean, the military is a little bit harder because they're literally overseas, you know, but for us in in the first responder professions, none of us are too busy to send a text, to pick up the phone. And I think what I saw actually in my last place was almost like everyone took a person, you know, whoever was kind of close to someone, you don't have to check on every single person who's out on light duty or, you know, is, is on, you know, some sort of uh, medical issue, but just delegate so that everyone, you know, maybe two people have that one person. So they just constantly check in on them because Man, what a good idea. Yeah. And because, you know, I had it with my back injury and the phone never rang, you know, and it was kind of a reflection of that particular department as well. However, you know, I hear this from from people that I know were loved in that department. It's just because we do get stuck in that cycle of shifts. Sometimes you, you just need to be stopped and be like, hey, reminded, hey, have you checked in on so-so? Because, you know, they were in our crew two weeks ago and we haven't seen them since. And it's important that, that we let them know that they are not forgotten and they are still part of our tribe. I love it. That's good. Brilliant. All right. Yeah. Well, then for people listening, where can they find your podcast? And then where are other places online to reach out to you? Yeah, they can reach me personally on my, on, it's Chase the Vase. They can find me at chasethevase.com. They can find me on Chase the Vase podcast or Agents of Recovery podcast. Instagram, Chase the Vase or Brock Bevel. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm the only guy out there with the big beard. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Brock, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, I tell this to everyone that really kind of pours their heart out in this in this podcast I understand the toll it takes when you relive it, even if just for a moment, if you flash back to that. But as we talked about before, the value of people hearing stories like yours, the ripple effect of that is so important. So I, I truly thank you for your courage and transparency today and for being so generous with your time.
Dude, I appreciate it, man. You're my friend. I'll do it. That's what it comes down to. We need each other. You know what I mean? Like we need to be able to have a voice.